Good morning, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and this is going to be an awesome episode. This episode is all about aftermath. We're talking about the destruction of the lamps and all the fallout that, that, of that and the impact that has on the Valar and on Valinor and Melkor and everything. And this is just, this is going to be awesome. So, let's get started. With me, as always, are the Tolkien maven Trish Lambert and the Tolkien professor Corey Olson. Good morning, you two. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm I'm great. Excellent. Excellent. I'm jazzed up this morning. Not, yeah. not my usual half asleep self. <laughs> yeah, oh my good. gosh. And you know, to be that bright, I can't even pretend to be that bright and chipper at seven o'clock in the morning. So you know, I really you can't admire even it. pretend to be that bright and chipper at ten o'clock. I know. I I can't. I'm attempting, <laughs> and I and I and, and I'm not. I'm still half awake at ten o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Now at at. One in the morning, you're on fire. <laughs> much better, much better, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. There's sometimes you know like uh, when we're when we're uh, uh, you know broadcasting and you know somebody from the other side of the world is is like, oh, it's you know midnight over here, and I'm like, oh man, I wish it were midnight here. I'd be so much more awake than I am right now. But anyway, okay. Um, uh, so welcome. So yeah. So today we're gonna we're gonna be talking about we're doing the next step. We're establishing Valinor, and most importantly, as we dis- as we discussed last time, we're gonna be doing the trees today. Um, and uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm as I said, I'm I'm pretty pumped up about the trees. The trees, of course, are are you know this really you know hugely iconic. You know one of I would say really one of the most mythic elements, you know, one of the most powerful mythic elements of Tolkien's entire subcreated world. I mean, I think that the the two trees certainly loom large in Tolkien's own imagination and you know, to to sort of you know, make them into a, a sort of a metaphor as well. You know, sort of the, the the imaginative light of the two trees really shines through so much of what Tolkien does. Even the Silmarils themselves. You know, he himself, you know, said famously in his in his letter to you know his publisher that uh, you know the Silmarils were in his heart. Um, but even the Silmarils seem to be, in a sense, really the reflection of the trees. The idea of you know the trees the trees of light that have been lost uh in the past is is part of the earliest elements i mean you can see that already there are already references to the the beautiful trees of light that were but have now been destroyed um way back in his like early uh version you know in the fall of gondolin you know the first full silmarillion story he wrote already has that um again not only the existence of the trees but of the loss of the trees um it's already there in the very first Silmarillion story he wrote. So, um, so anyway, I'm 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 excited to uh, to do this. And Marie, you're, you are right. It is uh, it is it is uh, seasonal in a sense, right? To, to be talking about luminous trees uh, as we are uh, in the Christmas season here. So yeah, that's that's uh, that that is that is that is kind of fun. You can so I, I don't know if you have two of them in your house, but anybody who has two trees lit up in you know one with light you know and and one with uh with with gold you know with with like with with white and one with golden light bonus like infinite bonus nerd points uh if uh if that is how you do your christmas decorations um anyway so so uh but first as we always do i want to i want to go back and do a little bit of review so we can be you know first to be making sure that we are sort of appropriately establishing connections i want to make sure that we have the kind of continuity i've been i've been feeling uh 
you know, as we've gone along and kind of gotten used to this over the last few months, you know, as we've really kind of gotten into the rhythm of planning these episodes, um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm feeling really both sort of more comfortable, but I guess really sort of pleased. I really like the this medium for storytelling, you know, the way in which this is at the same time... Yeah you know, a serial. So we're, you know, we're telling this, you know, this really long story. Um, uh, and, you know, being able to do so in, in really careful detail and, and, uh, you know, not just having to sort of summarize and, and wave our hands. So the, the sort of freedom of being able to indulge in a really long story, but also, you know, balancing the way that the serial television series prompts you also to be thinking in terms of, you know, the arc of the storyline for the individual episodes so that you're, you're telling both a short story and, uh, you know, and a very long story at the same time. Um, and it, it, and I, I feel like it took me a while to kind of get the hang of that in a sense. Um, but I've been, I've been feeling really kind of pleased with it and I'm really, I'm really liking it. Um, so, um, anyhow, um, uh, I am, um, so yeah, so I want to make sure that we're connecting to the previous episode and also addressing questions, uh, you know, a couple questions that people had. So first, actually, I want to start with that. I want to start with not, not exactly a question, but a topic that was being sort of debated on the discussion uh, forum uh, this past week. Um, and that's the question about Angband and Utumno, because of course, in the previous episode, we were talking about Melkor really establishing himself at Utumno. And I was uh, sort of suggesting that we have... You know, that basically, uh, episode, uh, uh, what was it, seven, last episode, um, sort of culminates with the establishment of the two parallel kingdoms, the establishment of Otumno in Middle-earth and the establishment of Valinor, um, you know, really a sort of Valmar, uh, over there in Valinor, um, and, uh, and, and so, I, you know, th that parallel is really attractive and, and especially the way that we were talking about, um, you know, how basically the sort of the, the, the way in which we can kind of deal with the moral co complexity of this situation, um, that we have, um, uh, uh, you know, the Valar doing the right thing for the wrong reasons and Melkor doing the right thing for the, uh, doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. Um, and I, I just, I, I love that. And I, I love that more the more I've thought about that. Um, so, but anyway, so this issue, this, uh, the, this prospect of, of, uh, Melkor really establishing Utumno kicked off a discussion on the boards about, uh, Angband and Utumno. Uh, and, the question Philip Menzies raised the, the, I think the very appropriate question, um, you know, is that something that we would want to compress? Is, you know, is two fortifications for, for Melkor too many? You know, do we just, do we combine them into one? Is it, is it confusing? Do we need to? Um, and, you know, and, and, and if so, how do those, how do those two work? Um, you'll remember that what happens in the book is that Utumno is the initial fortress that Melkor establishes. Um, and it's Utumno that gets wrecked by the Valar, uh, during the wars, um, you know, when the, when they're, when they're fighting for the elves at the awakening of the elves, you know, the, 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 the battles with which we are going to end season one, um, is the destruction of Utumno, but Angband is established as sort of a southern outpost of that, and Sauron is made its captain, you know, he's made the lieutenant of, of, of Angband there, um, now, 
The Sauron question is a bigger question. We'll come back to the Sauron question because I know that the Sauron question, that is, when does Sauron uh, uh, defect to Melkor? How does that come about? And what exactly does Sauron do? Um, Those are questions which were uh, a big focus of the discussion boards this past week. And so I want to I want to really come back to that and talk about that a good deal more in our uh, um, in our later in the show. Um, but for now, just to, I, 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 my own vote would be that we do keep Angband and Autumno separate. And the reason for that is that I do think that we, you know, it's true that if we make them simply redundant, you know, if, if there's no real reason to, and this is the kind of compression you so often see in adaptations, you know, when, you know, if you're like, look, there's no, there's no compelling reason for Melkor to have two different strongholds. Um, I mean, other than like one to be sacked and one to be used later on, he could always just build another one or something. Um, but I, I think that we could have them. And he, th- this would be my argument for what we do with Atomno and, uh, uh, and Angband. And my thought is that Utumno is gorgeous and not primarily a stat like basically i would say otumno is melkor's palace and angband is a fortress and in a sense on melkor's scale a kind of bolt hole that he makes angband in secret because its secrecy is an important element it's not found by the valor that's why sauron escapes sauron isn't captured by them when they take uh melkor um so Angman needs to be secret, and it's what he's going to return to and expand uh, and establish. And of course, Angman becomes the central stronghold of Melkor through the rest of the first age. Um, but I, that that I, I because especially given what we established last time with Utumno being sort of the counterpart of Valmar, right? Both of them are going to establish, you know, their sort of lovely homes. The difference, of course, being that the Valar are going off to Valinor and establishing this, like, beautiful, communal, let's all live together and do our own things in harmony kind of place, and Melkor is going off to establish his I am awesome palace, right? Um... But both of them are going to be establishing things, places of beauty and of light, though I would say actually Melkor's would be more full of light, uh, than that because he's the light guy. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, light would be, light, light would be a feature. In fact, what I kind of would love to do if we could visually, um, and here again, this is the kind of thing that I say when I like make really vague visual statements, but really have no, I mean, I have no, I'm not an artist or a designer and have no idea how you'd actually do any of this stuff. So I, but I just like to kind of throw out these concepts and then I'd love to see if anyone could actually do it. But, um, uh, but basically, I would love to see the Palace of Atumno full of of beautiful lights and radiant things, such that when we see the Silmarils, our first thought, like Melkor's first thought, would be, "Oh, those things would fit. It would like those things would be perfect in Otumno. Like those, like the Silmarils, those really belong in Otumno. Like that's the, the they 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 totally fit the Otumno theme." Right. So you can kind of get why, you know, from from one angle, why Melkor would want them. Right. It's not that he's coveting something other than himself. He's coveting something which, like, he he feels like a a kind of right to, right? You know, like, they're, like, oh, yeah, these are, this is my kind of thing, right? Um, I really, I am, I should have them. I am the logical owner of them. It would be wrong for anybody other than me to have these, 
you know, right. should be the kind of, uh, you know, he doesn't have the kind of, uh, you know, ownership that Feanor claims, right? He did make them, you know, for Feanor, it's all about like, these are mine, I made them. And, uh, um, you know, with Melkor, it's like, yeah, okay, you made them, but that's just kind of an accident, right? Um, you might be the process by which they came about, but they belong to but me. But they're meant right? for me. Yes, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Now, one of, so one of the things about that that would be, you know, uh, when we get when we would get into the writing, actually, and the content of probably not just you know this episode or the one prior to it, but all along, is is to make it so that when he makes a tumno, it's very clear it's the difference. Right. You know, that difference between what the Valar are doing, what what Melkor are doing, is going to be, you know, that's really a lot in the dialogue and in the body language and all of that kind of stuff, you know, to where you get this, you know, it's all about my awesomeness. So that when he gets to the Silmarils and it makes sense to the audience, you know, it's like, oh, of course, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, that's right in line about with what, how the guy's been being the whole way along. So I just want to throw that in. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, no, that would be cool. So anyway, so that, that was just, I just want, wanted to kind of throw that out there. I, you know, I don't know if we'll talk about Angband more today, you know, if we'll come back around to that today. I kind of suspect that won't be a, a major focus, but, um, but I just wanted to, you know, since it's been, it's been under discussion, I just wanted to respond to that because that was my idea for how we could sort of differentiate them. And, and, and I, it's, I mean, one of the cool things about this, if you think about it, the destruction of Utumno, therefore, um, can be can be a tragedy, right? You know, the destruction of Otumno, in seeing Otumno destroyed in episode 13, it will be tragic. It will be sad. Um, it should be sad to see all of this beauty being destroyed. And therefore, the destruction of Otumno is itself a kind of, you know, serves as a kind of a visual symbol for the marring right. of Melkor's own character. Exactly. It's one more step in the abyss. Yeah, toward the abyss. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, originally I was kind of in Philip's state of mind, you know, let's combine them, which I guess is kind of like almost sloppy adaptation, you know, to just automatically assume we should do that, kind of. But no, I think your point's well taken. It does make sense. It does make sense. And I think if they were both just fortresses, I I would be tempted to do it too. Right, Um, right. But... uh, but just because of the way we've come around to it, especially through the last yeah. episode, we're thinking about the parallel well, with Valinor. Yeah, and then when he builds Angband, Amb- 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 the, the contrast between the two places is going to be marked. Yes. You know, I mean, it'll be kind of, you know, like, whoa. Right. Okay. Absolutely. really got over the edge. Kind of yes, thing. exactly. Think about how, you know, Angband is called the, you know, the the Hells of Iron, right? You know, I mean, right. it's one, you know, that's how they, you know, and all of the, like, you know, dank caverns and dungeon, you know, all that stuff that we get with Angband, you know, thinking about the Baron and Luthien story and everything else. Um, you know, the imprisonment of the Noldor and the slavery of people like Gwyndor and, and, and all that. So that's all Angband, right? So yeah, I do think that, um, and, and, and remember, he establishes himself as, um, as, you know, sort of tyrant of the world there. You know, we, we were already talking about the moment when he, you know, maybe at the end of season two, when Melkor really kind of embraces that identity, you know, the, the, the name change from Melkor to Morgoth, and we're talking about the, the significance of that. Right. Right. That kind of coincides with his taking up residence in Angband. 
And so we really can make that visual, that, you know, have that be a visual marker. Um, you know, and that, it's going to just, you know, it's just going to make the tragedy even more so because, you know, we'll all, we will have the memory of Autumno in our, in our minds. Yes. And the beauty that he had made. And it's like, whoa, you know, talk about how far fallen. Phew. Right. So that's really sad. Yeah, exactly. Where his focus is no longer, I mean, it, it, that, I guess if you had to sort of connect the two, especially thinking about Melkor's own relationship with, like thinking about like Melkor and Utumno versus, you know, Morgoth and Angband. Um, it's basically on, you know, it's not that he isn't flawed in both places. It's not like, oh, you know, he was good and then, and then he's evil, but rather his focus in Otumno, um, his, his, the, 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 the rebellion of his nature, you know, the flaws in his character, um, his fall is seen in pride and right. glory, you know, his, his desire for glory and for beauty, but to possess it and to, to give glory to himself. Um, so in Otumno, we see him lifting himself up as, you know, the glorious ruler of the world. In Angband, we see him having changed, not that he's become evil or even that he's now revealing the evil that he always was, but rather it's just, it's, He's he's further along his own descent to the point where he's no longer even bothering about the pride and glory thing and just focusing on strength and dominion. Um, and that's and that's, I think, a step in his own degradation. And I think degradation is what we see in Melkor. Again, it's not about him becoming more evil, nor is it about our perceiving the evil more and more clearly. It's about him actually changing, him actually moving down that path. That's a metaphor that Tolkien used. You know, think about how he talked about Sauron following the same, uh, you know, disastrous path to the void um, mm-hmm. that uh, that that Morgoth traveled down. Um, so, I wh- what I think would be the, the the crowning victory for us in our depiction of Melkor is to show him actually traveling down that path, to show his character changing over time. Um, and uh, and show how that happens. That that to me is like would be like the ultimate kind of Tolkienian thing to do. He did such a great job of showing the path, you know how one travels down that path. You know the whether you're watching sort of its first steps in somebody like Boromir, or whether you're seeing somebody in the middle of the road like Saruman, right, um, or Denethor even. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, so yeah, if we can show him getting, you know, and, and, and so, and to me, it makes a kind of intuitive sense, right? I mean, he's just ticked off when he comes back. Um, and after he's been burned, you know, physically burned and, uh, um, and he's, he's not bothering with trying to get everyone like, in Otumno, he's still trying to get everybody to praise him. Like he, it's, it's like he still cares what other people think, right? Um, he wants the, his, his relationship with the rest of the Valar is, he wants to be adored. yeah, I expect you to adore me and worship me, right? Um, right. in, by the time he gets to Angband, he's not in, he's not, he's not there anymore. Uh, now he's right. just, I want to make you suffer because I'm pissed off at you because you didn't worship me and you won't worship me and I'm giving up on you worshiping me and I just want to punish you now. Uh, you know, and, and show you, I, I want to force you to, you know, compel you to admit that I am better than you. Um, and I will, and I will do that by strength. Um, so anyway, that, you know, that, that, and again, to me, it seems like a, a pretty logical moral progression that we can, that we can, that we can get to. Um, and I think would be 
I think would be really cool. So anyway, we, we can come back to Atumno. Uh, I definitely want to talk about sort of Melkor and Atumno a little bit more later on today. Um, but I did just want to address the Angband and Atumno idea because I didn't know if we'd get to it later on and it was something raised uh, a lot. Um, but um, but let's, let's, uh, let's move forward, I think, and uh, talk about, uh, it to talking more about today's episode stuff. Um, but first, as always, let us interrupt this episode with some announcements. Um, uh, in my way of making sure I don't forget to do it at the end. Um, so, as we, as I mentioned last time, of course, the, the, the biggest local news here uh, at, at Mythgard Institute and Signum University is the uh, release, the opening of registration of our spring classes. Um, strongly uh, urge you to, uh, to check those out. If you go to Mythgard.org, you will see the links to our, uh, to our spring classes. Um, really, really fun slate. I'm doing my modern fantasy class so people can, you know, can read some fantasy of the last 30 years or so with me. Um, you know, a really fun sampling books. I'm really looking forward to talking about. Um, and, um, I'm doing, I'm doing the first book of the codex Alara, Dave. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember if I mentioned oh, that yeah. to you. So, yeah, uh, I, uh, can't yeah, do modern fantasy without Jim Butcher. <laughs> well, two for two, probably I won't know, do butcher in number three, but, uh, I don't know. You got the cinder spires. Who knows? Know, we'll see. Be. We'll see. Um, but um, anyway, so you know that that should be that should be a lot of fun. Um, I'm really looking forward to to to, to modern fantasy. Um, the uh, Doug Anderson's class. Doug Anderson, of course, is as you probably know, Doug Anderson is the the author of the Annotated Hobbit. Just one of the most thorough and oh, uh, well informed scholars of 20th century fantasy and science fiction I know of. Um, I know no human being who knows more about like early and mid century fantasy and science fiction than Doug Anderson. Um, uh, the guy is just an absolute encyclopedia. It's amazing. Um, and he's, so he's teaching a class on the inklings in science fiction. So we're going to be, that's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's going to be looking at the science fiction of like the, the sort of spanning the, the central decades of the 20th century, but looking at that sort of through the, through the, the lens of the inklings, both the things that the, the science fiction works that influenced their thinking, their own engagement with science fiction and, and their own attempts, both of them, Lewis and Tolkien especially to, to, to write science fiction of their own. And then the science fiction that they then continued to be reading and thinking about and that continued to influence them afterwards. Who else in the Inklings is known for having produced science fiction? Well, I, probably gross the, it's mostly them. I mean, I, I don't know if you could count anything that Williams did. I'd have to ask Ser, Serena this question. Uh, uh, um, Serena Higgins, uh, of course, the... The Charles Williams. The Charles Williams guru, yeah. Um, That's right. Uh, the, the person to whom I always go for Charles Williams questions. Um, and I don't know if anything that he wrote could really be considered science fiction. Um, I, don't, I don't know that he that he really sort of went in that direction. It's, it's going to be pretty much Lewis and Tolkien that he's going to be focusing oh, okay. on. But um, uh, but anyway, then also looking at the sort of the things that influenced them later on, and and yeah. and it, it 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 should be really cool. I'm, I, I and this is a thing, you know. A lot of people study the science fiction of that period, you know, of the, sort of you know. That you know the the great period of the the center of the twentieth century um, for science fiction, but very few people really kind of connect that or think about that in conjunction with Tolkien and Lewis. Yeah, um, absolutely. I was just thinking that you know in inkling studies, that's just never been. I never have thought of that. And what a great angle. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
it's, like, it's it, like the, the insight into there are two yeah. wonderful studies, right? The study of that age of science fiction, the study right. of the Inklings, and they almost never contact each other, right? I mean, it's yeah. uh, uh, so anyway. I think that that's really um, that you that's know, really they weren't just fun. talking about fairies and yeah. fantasy, and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, was it you that said? I think the last last episode you said that Asimov. Tolkien was a big fan of Asimov. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he read he read he read awesome. Asimov and 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 really and really and liked him. Um, so yeah, yeah. No, it, it's it should be it should be it should be a really great class. And then of course we have the invented languages through Tolkien class, um, and this is one that I think is just an amazing opportunity too. Um, you know, a lot of people have been want people have been wanting us to do a class on on Quenya since like 2011 when Mythgard first founded it. Uh, in the fall of 2011, when we we're offering our first class, did I begin fielding uh, uh, requests that we would uh, teach a class on Quenya? And we're doing that, but we're doing much more than that. Um, and uh, Andrew Higgins is teaching the class, and he's teaching he's co-teaching the class with Dimitri Femi and Carl Hostetter. Um, it's just an awesome team. And basically, what through that class, what they're going to be doing is not only just teaching you Elvish, um, though you will learn Elvish in the class, but it's not only that. Um, well, the focus of the class is going to be on the evolution of the of the languages in Tolkien's mind to try to get you to begin to acquaint you with the process of language invention in Tolkien, the evolution of those languages, how his and ultimately how his creative process in forming and developing and revising his languages are linked to the development of the mythology in his mind. Tolkien said, of course, that all of his stories were rooted in his languages, that ultimately they kind of come from his languages and, and, and are designed as context for his languages. And although that's a thing that's kind of acknowledged by a lot of Tolkien fans, I think very few Tolkien fans, and I count myself among these, really understand that, you know, because most of us don't have the same relationship or a similar relationship with language that Tolkien has. And so if you're anything like me, that whole concept of, you know, how it is that an invented language you're making up can be not a, you know, a kind of a merely an appendix you add on to your book, not just something that you make up to give color to your story, but that your story itself can be rooted in it, that the, the language invention is itself the most fundamental uh, creative and imaginative process that he goes through and the rest of all, you know, his stories are, are sort of spin-offs of that. Um, understanding that, really getting what that was like for Tolkien is something that I find, you know, have always found really kind of just impossible to imagine. That is what uh, Andrew Higgins with Dimitri Femi and Carl Hostetter is really going to be showing. They're going to be showing how, you know, what was Tolkien's imaginative process, not just in, you know, how did he invent a language, but how did his language and his ideas grow and how is it linked to his stories? Um, so it will be just a, a, a unique and a uniquely important way to really begin to understand Tolkien's mind and his, his, his inventive process. Um, so anyway, it's just, Gonna be a phenomenal class. I'm really, I'm really excited about that. So, okay. Plus, Andrew Higgins is just—he just—he kicks butt. Yes, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Uh, he it has been so much fun to be to be connected with him. He's been a, a student and auditor of ours 
from the beginning and to see him go through the process of, um, you know, sort of starting his own blog, getting his PhD. He is now Dr. Andrew Higgins, having written uh, his dissertation on Tolkien's early languages. And uh, he's now editing, which is due to be released in the spring. Um, he's editing just as, um, uh, you know, editions of some of Tolkien's other works. I, in particular, um, if anybody knows the edition of Tolkien's On Fairy Stories that was edited by uh, Dimitri, uh, by uh, Rowan Flieger and Doug Anderson, um, where they sort of showed that lecture and the development of that lecture and its different drafts to kind of understand that that and where it came from. Um, Andrew Higgins and Dimitri Fimi have co-edited a similar edition of Tolkien's important essay, A Secret Vice, on his language um, invention and uh, language invention process. And HarperCollins is going to be publishing that uh, this coming spring. So, uh, anyway, that's, uh, uh, so yeah, I just, to, to see him sort of grow and he is, uh, uh, so enthusiastic and this, he just, he loves this stuff so much, uh, and it will be, it will definitely be, uh, wonderful to be looking through this. I know, and again, I know my own head spins when I think, I mean, I am not really a language person. And when I think not only try to wrap my head around Quenya, but try to understand the progression from, you know, Tolkien's early languages like Goldogrin and how that grew into his elvish languages and, and the, the link between that and his stories. I myself can really do no more than wave my hands at that. I don't really understand it myself. I don't have an intuitive understanding of how those languages developed and what that means for his stories. Um, so anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the classes that I have been most looking forward to, uh, uh, to, to, to auditing and listening in on. So I'm, 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 I'm pretty pumped, uh, for that class. So anyway, those are our main lit classes in the spring. I also wanted to make sure everybody heard if you haven't, um, if you haven't heard the, the rumors yet, the next two Mythgard Academy classes have been officially decided upon are, are the next two, uh, the next two book seminars we're going to be running. Um, and those are going to be starting in January. And the first one is going to be the shaping of Middle Earth. In fact, the electorate did come through. I, I was, you know, I've been wondering is the, is our Mythgard Academy electorate going to, to continue in our march through the history of Middle Earth series and, the answer is yes, yes. They decided very emphatically that they wanted to continue and do the shaping of Middle Earth. So we're going to be uh, we're going to be doing Volume Four of the history of Middle Earth, um, and it's in the shaping of Middle Earth really that the modern Silmarillion begins. Really, kind of gets its um, uh, uh, and I say the modern Silmarillion when Tolkien left the Lost Tales structure behind um, and began writing the Silmarillion stories, kind of in the mode that they still are in in the published Silmarillion. This kind of epitomized mode to use Christopher Tolkien's word about it, you know, sort of more like a, more like a, 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 a sort of a historical overview rather than having it within the frame of the lost tales story. Um, he, this is the, the shaping of middle earth contains the, you know, the times when he began doing that. So you'll be able to see, uh, in, in a sense that the first versions of, of, of really of this, of the, of the earliest Silmarillion, the Lost Tales, you get the, the, the first versions of the stories, but here you get to see him shaping these things together into the Silmarillion really for the first time. Um, and there is just some awesome, awesome stuff in there. So, um, that's going to be fun. It's going to be cool. So, uh, we're looking forward to that. Um, that will start the first Wednesday of January. So Wednesday, January 6th. 
will be our first class for the shaping of Middle-earth. And after the shaping of Middle-earth, we are going to do another one of my favorite books of all time. I'm so excited. We're going to do Dracula by Bram Stoker. Uh, absolute classic. I'm sure you're not manipulating this. You know, it's, I, <laughs> know, it's so I, I honestly, I you're hear about it after again. the fact. I know, it again. seems. Well, I think it's a sign of how much people listen to Corey. You know, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I see, I know it looks bad, right? I know that it looks like I'm just like, it's all window dressing and I'm just cherry picking all of my favorite books. Um, but it's totally not. I, 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 I really, I just learn about it after the fact. I mean, I've, I'm just informed. And Jonathan Strange, you know, is an exception, so. That's a, that's a perfect it. example of how I'd not even read that book. Um, but boy, <laughs> oh my goodness. I, we just finished that this past Wednesday. We did our final session on the final. And Dave, have you, have you read Jonathan Strange, Mr. Norrell? No, I haven't. Okay, well, oh, it's like a thousand-page-long really like book, so it's a bit of an investment. Um, <laughs> I really like it. But, it's like a good holiday thing. But, oh my goodness, holy cow, the seven-part BBC miniseries, the seven-hour, you know, seven-one-hour session BBC miniseries adaptation of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is one of the best freaking film adaptations of any book I have ever seen. It is un. Believable. I just, I was just, I was ravished by the film adaptation of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Loved it. I mean, absolutely loved it. Um, it, it rocketed up to near the very top of my list. I mean, it's like top two. There's only one other adaptation that I know of that even rivals it. And of course, uh, I'm referring to the, the BBC Colin Firth, uh, uh, Pride and Prejudice, which is just, has always been wow. my gold standard for, great. for adaptations. Yeah. Um, and it's like right up there. I mean, it's, 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 it's incredible. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's, I have that scheduled for Christmas Day. That's my Christmas Day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to binge watch the thing. Yeah. Whew. Um, yeah. Um, yes, Mariel is anyway. saying, if, if I were choosing, if I were choosing the books myself, we would have done Boethius already. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. There's no stronger evidence that you're not manipulating from the fact yeah. that you haven't done that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah, so we're, so we're, we're doing Dracula. I don't know when exactly that's going to start. I haven't made up the schedule for shaping. I Maybe mean, we, I decided we're going to start on the 6th. I'm hoping to get to the schedule soon in the next few days, I hope. Um, but it's probably like March-ish we'll start, we'll start Dracula, I would think. So, anyway, so that's what's coming up. Uh, very exciting stuff to begin in January. So starting the first week of January, we're gonna, we're gonna have, uh, some fun stuff. So we're gonna do, uh, a couple film film episodes in a row, and we're gonna start shaping of Middle Earth, and, uh, get ready to start the spring semester at Signum. It's gonna be great. Um, so, alright. Let's get back to our episode today. So actually, before we get back to the specifics of today's episode, I want to pause for a second um, to do a kind of an overview of upcoming episodes and plot lines. That is, we need to be thinking about, I don't think we have to decide this right now, but I wanted to kind of throw this out there because these are things that we need to be thinking about when we did the episode outline at the beginning of the season. Um, when we got to this stage, to the state, you know, starting in the next episode, starting with episode nine of the season... Um, we sort of listed a series of things, but I didn't feel very strongly about what sequence they, sh they should go in. We were totally in the mode, or at least I was totally in the mode of just like, let's brainstorm 
the the stuff that we want to make sure we do an episode to cover. Um, and the the things that we listed um, for the next episode, for episode eight, no, that this today is episode eight. Um, for episode nine, we listed the rebellion of Ase. For episode ten, we listed Aule and the dwarves. For episode eleven, we listed Yavanna and the Ents and eagles. Um, and then for episode eleven, we list or for episode twelve, we listed Varda and the stars. Um, and then of course we had um, the final, the you know, the war to begin all wars in episode thirteen. Um, so the the thing that I want to at least just kind of throw out there, and you know, if, if you guys have sort of uh, immediate thoughts about this, we can talk about it a little bit right now. Um, but at the least, I just wanted to kind of plant this, and this is one of the things I want people to be thinking about for next time. Is, um, in what sequence do we want to do these things? What seems to be a sensible, how, cause I want to make sure that we don't become too purely episodic. Um, and I think that these things do all and can all sort of go together and fit together. And we've already begun to kind of feel out some ways in which they are sort of thematically linked. And so I want to make sure that we come up with a logical progression. Um, now to that list, Ase, Aule and the Dwarves, Yavanna and the Ants, and Varda and the Stars. Uh, Varda and the Stars pretty much has to come near the end. So I think Varda and the Stars happening in episode 12 is pretty much a, a given because the fact that the, you know, the establishment of the great constellations that happens right as the elves awake is, you know, that's, I think we have to do that. Um, so my sequencing, the, the sequencing with that, I think is not really, is not really up for question, which means really we're talking about episodes 9, 10, and 11 primarily. Um, to that list, Ase, Aule, and Yavanna, I would, uh, I would add the, uh, the, the, topic which the discussion boards this past week were most enthusiastic about, which is uh, Sauron and the sort of defection of Sauron to Melkor and the establishment of Sauron as Melkor's lieutenant. Um, so, so we have these things. Sauron's defection, Ase's rebellion, uh, uh, Aule and the dwarves, um, and then Yavanna and the Ents. Um, all of these things which should happen in the next three episodes... Um, what order do we want to happen? How can we sort of link those things together? Um, those are things that we, and, and, and I would also then add, we need to be thinking about these things in the context of the relationship between, uh, the Valar and Melkor, right? How we are progressing along towards the war to begin all wars, um, and how do we have Melkor himself changing? How do we have the perception of the Valar changing as time goes on? How do we get them from their decisions at the end of episode seven to, to sort of go over to Valinor? Um, but, you know, and, and, and although, you know, we had talked about this, that although there would be some suspicion of Melkor and some would distrust him, others would not. Um, and many would not really sort of be able to conceive or believe the idea that Melkor would do something like destroying the lamps um, and striking against them, you know, as directly as that. Um, so um, anyway, so so that's um, I, that's something that needs to be woven in with all these things. And I think can be and obviously we see in at least the cases of Sauron and Asse, um 
Melkor himself is involved, right? So that's, you know, it's inevitable to integrate Melkor's own progression um, in each of those stories. Um, now, hmm. interestingly, Brian Fatterini and Marie Prosser have both just suggested the same thing, um, which is that uh, Asse's Rebellion could be a, a multi-episode thing, Um uh, Marie suggests, you know, if we, if we, you know, sort of ha- have his rebellion happening in one, um, in one episode, you know, to sort of make it look, you know, to give the idea that he could be gone, uh, permanently and then have him won back by Uin in, in, you know, in a follow-up episode, you know, in, in the next episode. Um, I kind of like that. If we don't have, it certainly would go a long ways towards preventing those, um, episodes from being too, um, those incidents, I guess I should say, from being too isolated from each other. That is, you know, not to just have like, and now the Sauron chunk, and now the Ase chunk, and now the Aule chunk. Um, if we do kind of weave them in uh, more, yeah. we we yeah. could have one single episode in which both Sauron and Ase defect, basically. Could have the Bad Boys episode. Yeah, the Bad Boys episode. Yeah. Um, and then, and then, of course, in the follow-up episode, we could we could then focus on the contrast between Ase, who returns to his allegiance, and Sauron, who doesn't. Well, but, would it also but may be appear Aule to. as well? Would we include Aule in that as well, or is it just Ase? And, well, and see, Sauron? I mean, the three of them do make a, a, an interesting kind of grouping, right? Because yeah, all three yeah. of them kind of uh, fall or nearly fall to different degrees, right? You know, Aule right. almost falls. And repents. I'll say, kind of falls, but comes back. You know, but 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 then repents and comes back. And he falls further into actual rebellion, but then comes back. And Sauron falls into rebellion and doesn't come back. Right. So, um, right. The three of them make an interesting set in that way. Um, uh, and doing it over two episodes. You know, doing that arc over two episodes it's kind of a cool idea because you do kind of you can leave at the end of the first episode with sort of a question mark maybe on all three i don't know i don't know or maybe Aule goes through his thing in the first well, episode we should completely never miss the opportunity to have a cliffhanger <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yes right. uh, i do think i do think it would be kind of cool to overlap some of these stories because it would uh, um if you had a, some of these things happening at the same time, like we're observing Sauron's fall, Ase rebels, and that's like a multi-episode arc. Um, you know, some of these other things, like Ivana and the Ents and, and her conflict with uh, Aule, it, it, it would kind of, it would sort of, it would sort of, that would be kind of the overall fallout, right? Of um, of um, of Melkor, yes. of the destruction of the lamps and Melkor's sort of, you know, gradual fall that they would kind of suggest like everything's just going to hell. Yes. In a handbasket, right? Yes. Like, like, you know, like this is, look at what's happened, um, you know, look what sort of Melkor has done. Like he's just stirred up all this trouble and it's, you know, as opposed to it feeling, if it, if we did it episodically, just like this is the Aule episode, this is the Ase episode, it, it would connect less and would seem less like, you know, but it, if we introduce sort of these things on a rolling basis that they overlap, then it gives the characters more of an opportunity to look around and say, what, what is going on? Like, yes. why all of a sudden can nobody get along? Like, like, uh, you know, like what has happened to our, our game plan? Yeah, that I think is, is, is excellent. You know, that's, I really like that as essentially the theme 
Well, I was going to say of the second half of the season, but really kind of of the whole season, right? Um, that is, it's all about, it's all about the music. It's all about the discord. Um, so yes, I love the idea that basically what things should look like to the Valar, like Manwe and Varda sitting there on Teniquitil, um, in the second half of the season should, it, it should not be like, well, here are we, the Valar, one big, happy, harmonious family, but there's the bad guy over there, right? Um, you know, we should, should we stomp him? Nah, not yet. And then later on, they're like, ah, okay, let's stomp him, right? That's not a very interesting story, and I don't think does justice to the real situation. Um, instead, I love that idea, Dave, where, Basically, the situation is the Valar are have the, this is a real crisis, a real time of crisis for the Valar as they're saying everything's everything's going to hell, as you say. I mean, everything is everything is falling apart, everything. Um, and Melkor is only one issue. And they certainly don't see him as the cause of all of these things, because in a sense, he's not the cause of all these things. Lots of people are making choices. Um, you know, Sauron, Ase, and Aule all show that. You know, everybody, you know, there are many people who are making choices, um, to varying extents. Melkor is just the, the sort of the captain. Um, he's not the only problem. But see, this, and this is where we set up what I think could be a really beautiful irony at the end of the season. The central thrust of the whole second half of the season is Manway and Varda and others saying, we have to maintain order. We have, you know, we, order and harmony is what we need and everything is flying apart. We must oppose chaos. We must oppose strife. And that's why the realization at the end, we have to go to war. That is, we have to foment discord and you know, we have to participate in discord and, and seek a violent end to this through strife, not through harmony. Uh, so this is why uh, Manway, I think, should be continually wanting to reach out to Melkor all the way through. The, you know, it's it's and that to me is the crisis. It's not like do we or do we not go to war? Like should we or should we not stomp? You know, should we stomp on him now or should we stomp on him later? That's not the question. Um, that right. basically the crisis, the the sort of the climactic crisis of of season one, is the moment where Manway finally says, "Whoa, we have to. This isn't going to work." This, you know, harmony is not going to be achieved. We have to fight him. Um, and that should seem like an alien, even a tragic, even a, you know, it, it, that could feel like loss. You know, that could feel like defeat yeah. to, to Manway, I would think. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right about that. I think, and I think also sort of recognizing that this, that this isn't just a, this isn't just like a one bad apple thing. That, that right. he, you know, like, oh well, we just gotta stop Melkor and everything will be fine. Like, it's it's too late. The the bad apples spoiled the barrel to just just keep plugging away on that metaphor. <laughs> right. Um, that, that it's spread now. Like, even you know, even there's other people who aren't aren't who haven't turned to evil the way Melkor has. Although I guess I don't know if they fully recognize that yet. But but they haven't fallen quite so far. But nonetheless, like this is now sort of becoming an epidemic. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. And Marielle, I, I totally agree. Marielle says, uh, could Ale begin making the dwarves in response to all the disorder in fear that the children won't come because of it? Ah. Yes, Marielle, I love it. Um, because remember, we have, uh, we, you know, the book says that when he made the dwarf, he made, he, he made them to resist Melkor. 
right? Um, you know, to to be, you know, he made them strong to endure the chaos, right? The 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 right. The, the evil of of Morgoth. So basically, this is sort of another really cool irony, right? Aule's not rebelling; he's not siding with with Morgoth. It's the opposite. He's opposing Morgoth, but he's accepting strife. You know, he's uh, so so the the dwarves are themselves kind of rooted in this acceptance of discord and chaos. They're designed to be weapons within that chaos, or even sort of he sees them as weapons against that chaos. But of course, it, like that's perpetual. That's that's going somewhere where Manway is not yet ready to go. And and you know, Mariel's addition, you know, in fear that the children won't come because of it. So then we we fold into that his own pride and his own desire to kind of preempt the work of Iluvatar. Um, uh, I, I think there's a lot that we could do with that, um, and I, I, I really, I really like that motivation. Um, so again, we can show that the not only sort of the parallels between the 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 sort of rebellion I, you could you could kind of classify all three of them, I'll say Sauron and Aule as rebellions, but of course there's 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 a lot of nuances that we can show between them. You know, the three of them are kind of we can we can use the three of them as sort of foils for each other and ultimately foils for Melkor as well to again show different different uh, stages on that path of destruction, different aspects of it, different ways that it looks in different circumstances. Um, I mean, I think it's it, it gives us a, a lot of really cool opportunity to explore some of these themes in, 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 in different ways. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Timothy, that's the challenge, right? Timothy Fisher says, uh, you know, is there some inherent flaw in the Valor that enables all this deterioration to happen? Well, I, I mean, Timothy, that's always the the question, right? I mean, that's a, that's always the question of trying to conceive, you know, unfallen, sinless things, right? I mean, it's one of the challenges, like, for instance, anybody who has attempted to, to depict, I mean, this is a problem, for instance, that I've always had with Milton's Paradise Lost. Milton's Paradise Lost is a beautiful poem. Theologically, I've never found it very interesting, because he's depicting, he's trying to, he depicts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they've sinned, when they are still innocent of sin. And yet, they don't sound innocent of sin. Like they, it, it's, it's, you know, the, their dialogue, you know, the, their monologues, when they're tempted, um, never are, they don't sound to me like people who are innocent of sin, um, who really kind of don't get it. So, so the, the question of like, what does it mean to be totally free of, of, you know, that kind of a, an inclination towards sin and yet have the free will and the ability to choose? It's really hard to depict. By the way, for my money, uh, C.S. Lewis's depiction of this in Paralandra is one of the best I've ever seen. Um, but, you know, do they have an inherent flaw? No, but they have free will. They have the ability. All of them have the ability to make their choice. And Aule, I think, is a wonderful example within the Silmarillion, a wonderful example of Tolkien sort of showing it's not just a black and white deal. Right. You know, it's not just like Manway, who is perfect and awesome in every way, uh, which, of course, people who read the book carefully know isn't true. And um, uh, and Melkor, who's just evil, you know, who's just, you know, he's just the bad guy. Um, Aule shows like, here's how somebody with good intentions can go in this direction. And he 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 could go. But he doesn't. Right. He repents. And we see his his choice there. Um, but again, so it's not just about um, it's not just about it's not just about being flawed. Um, 
so um, anyhow, I, 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 but but again, we 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 do need to show that we do we do need to show that ability to choose and the the sort of the choices that do lie before all of them and how all of them relate to them kind of differently. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um. Okay. Uh, yeah, and Nick Potts wants to emphasize Aule's impatience as well. Yes, I agree. It's a really important part of that story. Well, we'll we'll do Aule more. Today is not Aule, um, but uh, but as I said, I do want to be thinking about. Uh, I, I I do want to th- be thinking about how that how that works and how we can make it work and how we connect it um, with all these other things. I love this idea of splitting them up, and let's think about that a little bit more. Um, uh, but um uh, one thought that I had it kind of connected with this and and using this as a sort of a segue to think more again to come sort of to come back to episode eight here um I think we need to have at least one well we obviously have to have at least one scene that happens in Utumno because we want to show Utumno right and I think we we want to show the visual contrast uh between Utumno and Valmar. Um, and, and it's interesting. Some people were saying in the, a, bu- a bunch of people were saying in the comments box here that, um, when we, when I was talking about Utumno as, 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 as bright, uh, and glorious and as a palace that, that people were, were saying it should be gaudy. Well, I agree it should be flashy, but I would prefer for Utumno to be genuinely beautiful. Um, we shouldn't look, I don't think we should look at it and say, oh, that's tacky or that's overdone. It should be highly done, <laughs> right? Um, it should be not understated, but I don't think we need necessarily make it garish. You know, again, make it actually offensive to, you know, uh, to, you know, to, 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 you know, aesthetic taste. It should, it shouldn't look ridiculous. Um, it should be genuinely beautiful. But the, 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 the species of beautiful, which is like at its, you know, sort of at the extremes of ornate and showy. Um, if you see what I mean by that. Um, but anyhow. Right. Here's my thought. Several people were talking about on the discussion boards and today in the comments box already, people have been talking about like, you know, somebody should, you know, people have been wondering maybe, maybe Aule comes to visit, um, uh, Melkor and talks with him and maybe that could be sort of connected with his, you know, maybe something that Melkor says helps kind of nudge Aule in the direction of his, uh, of his, almost fall, you know, of, of sort of where, where he goes and that, and of course this being especially appealing since Sauron, of course, is one of Aule's Maya. So, um, you know, Sauron, uh, could get, you know, his, uh, his first trip and, you know, his first long, you know, his first long discussion with, uh, um, with Melkor here. Um, I don't dislike that idea. Um, but it's not my favorite idea. Um, so I want to suggest two counter ideas and you guys can tell me what you think about it. Um, first is my first counter idea is that I think it would be cooler as I was already suggesting if Aule's rebellion, if Aule's near fall is rooted not in him listening to the seductive words of Melkor, but in his opposition that like basically his opposition to Melkor to have him be one of the staunchest opposers and most uh, determined suspectors of Melkor and have that be what leads him to do what he does. 
Um, so that again, uh, and, and so that when he, uh, and th- it could, I think, make the decision to go to war at the end, um, uh, be, sort of fit into that theme particularly poignantly because Aule kind of would look like a negative example, right? Like if you wanted a reason not to go to war at the end of the season, you could just point to Aule. You know, in fact, Aule himself could say that in the council in episode 12, you know, to say, you know, look, uh, going to war, you know, I kind of went down that road, um, and I saw where it leads, and this is not a good idea. So anyway, so, so I kind of like the idea of, of Aule not being somebody who kind of has some inclinations in Melkor's direction, but then says, nah, um, and, but rather to be somebody whose opposition to Melkor leads him astray. I like, I, so that's one, my, one idea is that I like that better. And my second, idea is that I really I, I too want one of the Valar to come and visit uh, Melkor in Utumno in this episode but I want it to be Manwe because I want it to be Manwe reaching out and trying to establish peace um, which I think has got to be Mel, uh, Manwe's primary function you know he is the uh, he is the number one proponent of harmony and order like that's his job right as the uh as, as the as as the, you know the vice gerent of of uh of Iluvatar um and so i think i i think that he would do that and again remember to um um to to Remember where Manway, you know, the, 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 the scenes with Melk, with Manway and Melkor, like, we have to keep in mind the moment when he, Melkor, is gonna come back from being chained in the abyss and is gonna beg for his pardon and be granted it by Manway. Um, you know, that scene which is such a, such a, a, a significant scene, uh, and one which causes, so, you know, consternation among many readers, I think, of the Silmarillion, um, you know, when Manway seems like a gull, right? When he seems like a dupe and easily right. deceived by Melkor. And of course, we must remember Nienna too, who argues for his release. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think, um, I think that Nick Poazzo says that he likes the idea of Manway going before the throne of Melkor. Um, yeah, of basically, um, yeah, Nick, that, that, that is another thing that I like to show the contrast, right, between the two. And one of the main points of contrast, I would think, Nick, exactly like that, is that unlike Melkor, one of the main, one of the most visible differences, I think, between them, as far as their personalities go, is that Melkor is sort of always on his dignity. Like he's always thinking about getting respect from other people where Manway isn't, you know, to, to show Manway being just basically more humble, which means not thinking so much of himself and not really caring so much whether or not, um, you know, so, so, you know, Melkor can sort of show him sort of disrespect and have Manway not even really even notice because he doesn't care. Um, anyway, so what do you guys think about, uh, about, uh, about these suggestions and, I'm uh, I'm on board. You're on board. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I haven't had anything. I mean, I think everything sounds. Um, I I do kind of I like the idea of um, 
of, uh, of of Manway like going out of his way even to the point of sort of you know basing himself to try and try and work things out with Melkor. Like I, I think we should I think we should double down on this you know this the sense that everybody who reads the Silmarillion gets that like Manway is kind of a not a dupe but he's he's really like like he really is trying to keep things together and really tr- yes. trying to you know going to give Melkor a 18 different chances and like very reluctant to go to war and that kind of stuff which which I think are I think we should we should play up on that. I don't think I think we should be careful not to turn him into a doofus but like that he that he really understands the price that's going to be the penalty that will be paid. Um you know and not necessarily by them but by sort of like the collateral damage yes. the, you know the yes. human the the planet in general. Like I really think we should, uh, yeah. I, I think that's something we should we should double down on. You know, look for opportunities to add extra scenes, like a like a manway going to Melkor type scene. Yeah, like, I like that idea a lot. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Exactly. Karita says, "Does Manway look out of place in Melkor's fancy digs?" Yes, I think absolutely he does. I would think that Manway. It's tempting, of course, because Manway's the king, right? So it's tempting to make Manway. Um, to, to, for his costume, you know, for his wardrobe to be, you know, gorgeous and regal and kingly. But I think it would be really cool if man, I mean, Manway's, uh, man, so he, and now here I am giving uh, the same kind of vague and uninformed dictates to the costuming people. But, um, <laughs> but basically I, I think that what he wears should show his humility. Um, not that he's wearing like a friar's habit or something like that. He doesn't have to look like a monk. Um, but, but but simple and certainly i think like simplicity and humility should be something that is kind of evidenced in you know when you're seeing the two of them. so my my sort of vision which i realize is is kind of the thing that i have in my head is kind of comedic and wouldn't really work but you know i had this sort of image of like melkor and manway like you know sitting around in melkor's sitting room you know um i, I you know I, I, sort of lounging on chairs and talking and I do, in that, in that vague picture in my head, Karita, Manway does look out of place. You know, he's, his, there should be a, vis, a visible contrast between himself. You know, you should be able to tell just from looking, and not even from listening to, but even just from looking at Manway and Melkor, that Melkor thinks very highly of himself, and Manway doesn't, doesn't really care. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Marie says the problem is that Manway just an episode ago removed all the Val- the Valar to Valinor, so we have to be careful that Manway is not breaking any of his own statutes. Well, I don't think there need be a statute against them going. Um, I don't think that he's forbidden them to go to Middle-earth, as indeed we know that Yavanna and Orome are going to go, and I don't think we need to show that as the, like them having to sneak off and sneak back in, uh, you know, like uh, like uh, like teenagers or something creeping out no, the windows clearly, of their bedrooms. No, they're clearly banned... Yeah, right. they're not banned. They're, they're not banned. Either. It's just that they're going to set themselves like the, the 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 center of what they're going to do. The impulse, Manway's impulse, um, you know, Manway and the Valar's impulse. The 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 Valinor impulse is one of protection, right? Let's we were, you know, we set up this, you know, this beautiful and you know idyllic thing, you know, Almarin in in the midst of Middle Earth, and we were attacked. Something attacked us. We can't let that happen again. You know, we can't let beauty and, co- and concord be destroyed. We need to fort up, ultimately. 
And so that's why they go to Valinor. But that doesn't mean they can never go. Um, but again, then what Melkor says is that basically to do that is a kind of, ad- is, is a kind of abdication. Um, right. and, uh, you know, you're just giving up on Middle-earth. Um, and of course, people like Ivana would uh, disagree with him. Um, but yet, he's also kind of right, you know, that they are removing themselves from, uh, from, from, from Middle-earth. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. Um, cool, cool. Um, so uh, anyway, so Brian asks, what other than Melkor lives in Otumno? Great question, Brian Yoder. Uh, the Balrogs are too ugly to be around now, so who does Manway see? Uh, is it an empty, glorious space with Melkor alone, or is it filled with someone else? Brian, that's a wonderful question. I could think that he could still have um, some others, uh, you know, spirits that are with him who are not Balrogs. Um, I agree he should not be waited on by Balrogs. Uh, it would seem to break the mood. Um and not to mention, be pretty suspicious to Manway as well. Um, ooh, what? Remember, some of the Balrogs and stuff got missed when they when they took down Atumna. Um, like they didn't, they didn't. The Valar didn't get to all the deepest places. So the Balrogs live in the sub-basement of Otumno, you see. <laughs> they, they're they there, but they don't live. He doesn't let them come, because he would, you know, I, I, maybe he doesn't like, maybe we can sort of use them as a way for him to sort of show him uh, kind of in denial about his own direction, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. If, he, if he has contempt for all the other all the other characters and creatures that have fallen. Yeah, yeah. He thinks like, well, I'm not like them. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Brian says that, you know, the whole point of Autumno is that, you know, some, that is, you know, some, many of the spirits went to Valinor and some went to Autumno. So, um, you know, after the council, some, some Kenji, all the Valar choose to go to Valinor other than Melkor. But many of the Maiar might choose to come with him. Um, would Sauron be there yet? I say no, just because we want to make his his transition, uh, to say it very neutrally, um, we want to make Sauron's transition into a, into a, 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 a major thing. Um, so we don't want it to be there. We don't want him to be there yet. Um, there is the question, uh, Lydia Putnam suggests the Balrogs are sort of in masks, you know, that they're, they're, they're cloaked, you know, so that the, the Balrogs, you know, mm-hmm. they, they still have their true being, but they they still can sort of disguise themselves. I like the, the thematic, you know, sort of uh, symbolically, I like the idea of Balrogs in disguise. Uh, that's kind of symbolically does the same work that I was thinking of, of having the Balrogs lurking beneath. So you've got the beautiful glittery Atumno, but underneath is shadow and flame, right? Um, so I like right. that idea, but I don't think they should be able to. I mean, again, if we're going to be establishing the pattern, like once th- there's a line that you cross that you can't go back. And we see this. We see this with, with Melkor and we see this with Sauron, right? Um, that they can't, like he, after, um, after Numenor, Sauron can't 
do that anymore. He can't disguise himself. He, he, he couldn't do yep. what he did in Eregion again. Um, mm-hmm. right. He loses that capability. Melkor loses it too. So I think that with the destruction of the lamps, the Balrogs should probably have lost that ability. They, they can't make themselves right. appear beautiful anymore. So they have to just be hidden. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's like Melkor knows that they're there, but but he basically keeps them sequestered from anybody else. Like, Manway obviously wouldn't see them when um, when he visits kind of thing. Or maybe even anybody else living in a Tumno wouldn't really see them, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, he's like, Balrogs? I don't know where they went. Yeah, yeah. No, I haven't seen them. Uh, you'll be the first to know, though, if I find them. Right. Um, yeah. Melkor continues his, uh, continues his relentless search for the real destroyers of the lamps. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and Nick, he does start gathering his ugly minions as the war approaches. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, he, his, that even, yeah, see, Nick, that could even be an important moment, um, from Melkor's side, right? In the war. Him sort of deploying the Balrogs for the first time, um, is, you know, can be sort of like sort of showing him really sort of accepting that uh, we can see him transitioning to that, you know, the, the whole Atumno to Angband transition we were talking about before. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Brian, you're right. The, the, there's no war here yet. No, no, we're not, we're not, we're not talking about that. We're, we're kind of ranging forward here and thinking about how this, uh, how this works. Um, but uh, though I have to say, I kind of like the fact that um, I kind of like the fact that the, the the image of Morgoth alone, you know, of like Manway, like Melkor meeting Manway at the door and walking him through a tumno, and it's just this echoing, echoing, lonely place. Symbolically, that seems right. You know, beautiful but cold and empty. Um, and, you know, just Melkor's own voice echoing back to him in this big, empty, you know, beautiful but sterile hall. Um, I like that. I like that. Um, yeah, he's not really alone, but, um, uh, but, but, but I, 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 I think that would be cool. Um, Let's talk about the trees, as we only have like half an hour left to talk about the trees. So here, here's my thought. I think the, <laughs> I think the meeting between, uh, the, 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 the meeting between Manway, at least, you know, again, if I have my way, then the meeting between Manway and Melkor would happen at the beginning of the episode. Um, that's the follow-up. Which follow- I think would work. Yeah, yeah, that would work. So then they go, but, but then what we see, what we see in the second half of the episode, is basically, you know, okay, so episode seven, we saw the two different choices, right? The the right choice for the wrong reasons and the wrong choice for the right reasons. And what we see afterwards is the fruits of those choices. And the trees are basically, you know, it, we show like what comes from Valinor and what comes from Utumno. What comes from Valinor is the trees. You know, so we have the light and the beauty and the glory of the trees. And in Middle-earth, what happens in Middle-earth? This is where I think we need to, to, to bring back, and this was something that came up earlier in Chapter 1 
of the Silmarillion. Um, uh, it's the part where um, in the in the in the published Silmarillion, it's prior to the destruction of the lamps. Um, uh, when uh, he's in Otumno, but like the effect of his evil is being felt throughout the world. Green things fell sick and rotted, and the rivers were choked with weeds, uh, with weeds and slime. Remember all this. Um, but then, most importantly, oh, at least what, what I would want to emphasize: the forests grew dark and perilous. The haunts of fear and beasts became monsters of horn and ivory, and dyed the earth with blood. So I think the parallel that we do is <clears throat> we can. We can have we can introduce Orome for the first time, have Orome riding in Middle Earth, and having have him see, he sees the first of the monsters of Horn and Ivory dyeing the earth with blood. Um, so we see these hideous and bloodthirsty monsters appearing in Middle Earth, which are sort of the fruits of Melkor. And the trees right. rising in Valinor, which are sort of the fruits of the Valar's attempts to maintain peace and harmony, um, to, you know, to, to sort of shelter peace and harmony there in there in Valinor. Um, so you've got um, so thematically again. I think this could this 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 could be really cool, where you've got you've got Melkor's pride and ultimately also his envy of the Valar. Right. I mean, one of the things that's obviously in the back of Melkor's mind as he's making Utumno is like, you know, my pad is better than your pad, right? You know, he's the the Valar might feel no competition with Melkor, but he sure feels it for them. He's very aware of the fact that they've gone off to set up their place, but he by golly, even though he's by himself with his underlings, um that's certainly how he looks at it. Nevertheless, the palace that's why Utumno is so beautiful. Because he wants to make it more splendid, he wants the Valar to come visit him and have their jaws drop, and 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 then go back and feel ashamed of their squalid little, you know, uh, hutment that they've made over there in Valinor, um, and that he's obviously the greater and more glorious of the of the lot. Um, so again, envy, envy, but his pride and envy then becomes wrath, becomes anger, and. This is, and it's, you know, so the, the sort of the, the, the vicious monsters that come out of the darkness in the forests now filled with, with their terror, um, in Middle Earth are sort of the consequence of that. And Orame sees this. And again, so this is, this is another indication, you know, this, this becomes another kind of data point. Um, where are these monsters coming from? Why is this, why is this happening? And it's more evidence that this is the fruit of Morgoth's own frame of mind, which people, Manway primary, perhaps, of whom doesn't really believe that or want to believe that. Um, and then you have the trees, uh, as again, light and hope. But wait, okay, alright, I got, I, I, I've got a, so, I want to introduce two characters. I want to introduce Orame, right? Um, we're not, we don't do the, this is not the full Orame focus. We'll get much more of Orame in the beginning of season two when he meets with the elves. But we can at least become introduced to who he is. And I think we get Huan for the first time too. You know, so we get Orame and his hounds, um, hunting in Middle Earth here. Um, you know, we talked about that before. This seems to me a good opportunity. And when they can fight and kill, um, the first of these monsters. Um, you know, whatever they want to look like. Um, and, uh, um, and Brian Fatterini, I'm thinking we don't show how the beasts are made. We just have them appear. Um, 
because again, I don't think this is like, and this is evidence that these monsters are stratagems of Melkor. Um, I don't think it's exactly like that. It's just they're, they're almost like a kind of uh, side effect, I guess. Um, Marie asks if Tolkas will be with Orome. Yeah, why not, Marie? That gives us a chance to show Tolkas again, and also to sort of kind of show a contrast between their characters. Um, yeah, yeah, we could do that. Um, uh, Lydia asks, would it be the first death? Well, it would be the first fight of this kind. I mean, there was the fight with Ungoliant, but no blood was shed in that fight, you know? Um, this is the first time we'd have corpses on the ground, and that's what I think we would want to show. We would want to show, um, you know, like a, a field littered with corpses. I'm not thinking, like, do we have carnivores? Yeah, I think carnivores already exist. The difference is, like, Orame comes across, like, a field in which, like, an entire herd of deer have just been slaughtered and left to rot, basically. Um, you know, so he's just, like, looking at this, like, field strewn with mangled corpses. This is not a predator. You know, this is not just somebody who's killed to eat. Um, this is something fundamentally different. And then, like, you know, Huan and his, uh, and his pack mates, um, you know, come across the, you know, the, the track down the monster and, anyway, so, um, so that's, that's, that's sort of my thought, my thought with that. Um, you know, with, we have the, both the Manway Melkor incident and the growth of the trees, so I don't want to spend too much time on, like, uh, you know, a Tolkas and Orame buddy cop moment over in Middle-earth with, uh, Hunting with monsters. the monsters. Yeah. Um, nor do I want to indulge ourselves and spend a lot of time in lots of CGI violence with the monster. Um, <laughs> not but this. that seems like a worthy like C plot a C <laughs> yeah a, a C plot exactly for this episode um, uh, but um, but anyway yeah you're right Brian Yoder uh, is right to say that having both uh, having both Orame and Tolkas there does give us a chance to have a conversation right so they can be discussing what they're seeing and, and the potential significance of it um, right uh, yeah yeah, um, but um, anyway, uh, yeah, Brian, I agree. Uh, a lot more time lingering on the horror of the field of slaughter than time spent fighting the monster. Yeah, though, again, Tolkas is all about the is all about the fighting. Um, I mean, he would enjoy that. Um, Orame less so. Um, but uh, anyhow. Um, but there's an, I think, okay, so it, we're going back, you'll notice that I haven't at all come back to my idea about the Feanturi, uh, about, uh, uh, Mandos and, uh, Nienna and, um, Lorien. Um, here's, I, here, here, I, so I, I had a, I had a, I had a brainwave that I'm kind of proud of. Um, and, uh, so, uh, so, okay, here it is. Nienna. I want to highlight Nienna's role in the uh, planting of the trees. Yavanna, of course, is really important, but we're going to get plenty of Yavanna later on. And, you know, I, I, I'm not wanting to change her role. I'm not wanting to, you know, uh, marginalize Yavanna in the making of the trees. Um, Yavanna is still going to be the one whose song makes the trees grow. Um, 
But thematically, I want to emphasize Vienna and her role. Let me, um, let me, let me read that. Um, Okay, so, uh, okay, we're still in chapter one in the beginning of days. Um, pretty soon we're gonna get to chapter two and it's gonna be amazing. Um, someday. But yeah, someday soon in the next couple episodes. It's the Alley and Yavana stuff. So we've already been talking about some chapter two stuff. Uh, anyway, okay. Before its western gate, that is before the western gate of Valmar, there was a green mound, Ezelohar, that is also named Coralire. And Yavana hallowed it. And she sat there long upon the green grass and sang a song of power, in which was set all her thought of things that grew in the earth. But Nienna thought in silence, and watered the mold with tears. In that time the Valar were gathered together to hear the song of Yavanna, and they sat silent upon their thrones of council in the Mahanaxar, the Ring of Doom, near to the golden gates of Valmar, and Yavanna Kementari sang before them, and they watched. And that's when the two slender shoots come up. So Nienna gets the one mentioned. Nienna thought in silence and watered the mold with tears. Uh, it, that is to say, it's it's clear, I think clear, that Yavanna and Nienna are the two who really contribute to the trees. Like it's it, the, the trees are not just Yavanna's. They also Nienna is also involved. It is the watering of her tears, um, which facilitates the bringing forth of the trees. And again, don't want to downplay Yavanna, but we're going to get an opportunity to do Yavanna both in the Aule plot and in the aftermath of the Aule plot with the the end and eagles. We're going to get lots of, of, of Yavanna, but I think it, it would be a really fun and cool angle if we can uh, if we can show, if we can so basically we're telling that same story but we're telling it not exactly from the point of view of Nienna, but really emphasizing the role that uh, that Nienna actually does play. Um, what I was thinking of here, let me I'm going back now to the Valaquinta um, and uh, Let's see. Um, yeah, of course, the the key sentence I'm thinking of here is, uh, but she does not weep for herself, and those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance in hope. Um, so, so we have Val, uh, um, Valmar built, right? Valinor is finished, and the city of Valmar is built. Um, that's where we begin the episode with the with the the completion of Valmar and the the rest of the Valar celebrating, but Nienna weeping, right? Everyone is celebrating, but Nienna is mourning because she is still mourning for the marring of Arda. And, you know, maybe we have her, uh, you know, looking out towards Middle Earth over the, uh, you know, over the, you know, standing on the mountains and looking out into the darkness of Middle Earth and weeping for the marring of Arda. Um, she comes back, then, then after this we have Manway going over, you know, so after Valmar is finished, then we have Manway going over and having his meeting with Melkor. Nienna, it's, so I, I think it, it would be really cool if the impulse to do the trees came from Nienna. If, if we, if, if we depict it that way. That she's the one who speaks to Yavanna, um, and urges her to do it. And Yavanna undertakes it. And Nienna is there with her mourning. Um, and so that basically the tears, we show that the tears of Yavanna for the marring of Arda lead to hope. And that's, and so the light of the trees coming forth and, uh, and, and sort of recalling the light of the lamps, but, um, you know, having it, I, you know, even in some ways, I think even a more glorious, a more beautiful light than the lamps. Um, 
shows the flowering of hope that comes from the tears of Nienna, you see. Um, so just as we show the monsters of darkness coming from, you know, so we have, you know, Melkor's pride, which leads to envy, which leads to his anger and his wrath, of which, you know, uh, the fruit are the monsters of darkness that are out there killing things and leaving them to rot. So we see the marring of Arda leads to the mourning of Nienna, and her tears bring hope, which comes forth in light. Um, and I really, so I just, I think that that could work really, really cool. Um, that, that could come out very, uh, very, very cool. Um, uh, and David, she's not weeping in sadness. Exactly. One of the things that I think like the, 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 the mystery of sort of Nana's tears are mysterious and I think they should be mysterious. Um, she's not just sad. And I think we need to make it clear. It's going to be one of the most difficult things. I think I do not, um, we will have to, we would have to be very selective about the actress we chose to play Nienna. Um, because what she has, like the, the, what she has to communicate non-verbally in her mourning, I think is really intense, you know? Um, and, and it has to be really kind of, uh, really kind of complex. Um, but, um, Anyway, so I, I think I think we have we have you know the, the, the tears of Nienna and light and of course one of the really cool things about connecting explicitly connecting the the tears of Nienna and the growth of the trees to hope is of course we can then bring that back to the frame and Estelle who is listening to the story, right, and whose name means right. hope. Um so like that that could be a really a really cool kind of consummation um, uh, of this. Yeah, Nick Poazzo says this could be the first time that the other Valar, Valar really get Nienna. Nick, I think that's right. I think maybe the Valar themselves don't really understand her. You know, like... Ah, she's a drama queen. <laughs> well, <laughs> what's with, like, you know, uh, like, who invited Debbie Downer to the party all the time, right? Like, I mean, seriously. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, and, and somebody like Tolkas could even say something like that, you know, to be like, yeah, I don't understand. Yeah. Like why, you know, we're trying to build something. Cause basically the, the, the episode could even begin with that. We we could begin with scenes of the of the uh, like of the beautiful Valmar newly established and the 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 delight and and joy of the rest of the Valar and Nienna weeping and somebody like Tolkas being like, "Dude, what the heck?" <laughs> you know, like yeah, right. <laughs> this right. is a good moment here. You know, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, Cheryl, I I think. Um, Part of me is, uh, Cheryl Cardoza asked, could we have a discussion between Yavanna and Nienna to clarify the hope aspect? Yes, I think so. Um, part of me is tempted to make Nienna never speak and only ever cry, um, uh, you know, and, and never utter a word. Um, but that's probably too much, and I don't think we should probably really do that. Um, uh, so, yes, I do think that we should actually have a conversation between Nienna and Yavanna. And, you know, maybe we can even include a line which anticipates... Gilrine's statement. You know, I gave hope to the Dunedain, right? Um, but left none mm-hmm. for myself. Um, that's not Nienna's statement. But that, that, that idea of, you know, just as Gilrine talks about giving hope to the Dunedain, um, 
uh, Nienna can talk about giving hope, you know, to 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 Arda Mard. Um, so yeah, that 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 I think should be the um, uh, um, should be the um, the 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 impetus for making the trees in the first place. So again, the singing of the trees, you know, the it's still it's something that Yavanna herself undertakes, and she is still. We can even show the fact that she's really sort of the star of the show. We can even show the rest of the Valar all looking at and praising Yavanna for her work, and Nienna just still kind of standing off to the side, and nobody except maybe Mandos and Lorien appreciating the significance of what she did, um, and right. you know recognizing her role in the thing. But yet, you know, the viewers, we, we you know we we show the the viewers really clearly um, that. Uh, um, that this is um this is what um the you know that 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 this was her role um anyway so um yeah so that was my big thought about how we can introduce Nienna and the significance of who she is and what she does um without having to just make up a plot cuz it, it just sort of occurred to me when i was thinking about subplots for the Fanturi and I was like, well, dude, wait, we have one. Nienna's involved in the trees, right? So why not why not really emphasize that and use that as an opportunity for us really to show who Nienna is and what is her power. Um so anyway. That's an interesting that's an interesting it makes a lot of sense. It does it I it's a better explanation for sort of the impetus for building the trees than um yeah. Uh, then just like it just sort of happens randomly. Yes. I mean, it doesn't happen randomly, but. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's true. Brian, Brian, <laughs> Brian is pointing out that the only problem with my Fanturi subplot is that I've completely left out the Fanturi. I know, I know. We're, we'll, 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 we'll get to Mandos and Lorian in a, in a different episode. But yeah, sorry. But I'm sorry, Dave, you're saying? Um. Uh, I, I mean, I was just thinking, it's not like it ha- happens randomly, but it's just things like that, typically sort of the, the Silmarillion doesn't tend to focus on, at least with the Valor, doesn't tend to focus on those kinds of details about what were the discussions like leading up to the right. uh, the right. construction of the trees. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that once, I mean... <laughs> I would argue if somebody said, you know, if, so if, if, if we, if we, if we, you know, say we, we, we do this episode this way and somebody were to see this episode and say, Hey, you know, why did you change what Tolkien wrote? Um, you know, by making Nienna come up with the idea for the trees, I would say, how do you know it's a change? Right. I mean, like it's, <laughs> it's consistent with what it's, you know, what it's, what is said. I mean, I just read the whole story, you know, it was like five sentences long. Um, <laughs> You know, he says that Nienna was involved. He doesn't, he, and as you say, Dave, he didn't give us this, the discussions in advance, right? You know, we didn't get, uh, we didn't get, you know, Nienna, we, we, we don't get a detailed description of Nienna and Yavanna there with their like whiteboard on the sidelines doing X's and O's and figuring out, you know, strategizing, you know, brainstorming, how are they going to do the trees, right? Um, right. you know, we just know, you know, so we, 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 we show what is there, you know, Nienna watering the, the mound with her tears. Um, it is clear that she plays an important role in the trees, and I think that that's cool. Um, but uh, I, I like uh, Lydia Putnam's suggestion um, that um, uh, the contrast in praise that is showing everybody 
praising Yavanna for the trees, um, would also highlight the, the, uh, sort of lack of unity among the Valar. Um, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. And, and again, as you say, Lydia, it's not dissension, right? You're not showing that they're, it's not that they're gonna fly apart. But again, it's clear that these are not people who are just like, you know, living automatically in some kind of, in some kind of lockstep, right? Um, and it sets up, it shows anyway the, the, how there is the potential, um, for the disunity and the lack of understanding, uh, among all of them, of each other, um, how there is the potential for the bigger problems which are about to start erupting in the next few episodes, the Ase Sauron Aule sequence, um, that we're gonna be doing. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. Brian says, wouldn't it be tragic and horrible if the only time we see the Valar working in lockstep is in assaulting Utumno? Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, that'll be interesting. We'll have to see. I mean, the actual depiction of the war is going to be really interesting, you know, and what, what to me I think is really important when we do that is, we can't just have like, and now fight sequences, right? You know, it's a, it's, it's going to be more than that, right? This, you know, we can't, obviously we're, we, we cannot indulge, you know, like a sort of a Jacksonian impulse to do action sequences in episode 13, right? Um, even how the battle is conducted, even how the fighting happens, it's part of the mythic elements, you know, part of the mythic nature of, um, of the story itself. So, um, yeah, yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But again, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 uh, what, oh, interesting. See, Nick Palazzo, uh, speaking on behalf of, 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 of Hakan, who is in here, uh, this morning, um, Nick Palazzo is shoot, uh, um, voicing his, the comment that Hakan made on the discussion board, the idea that Namo, Irme, uh, Irmo, Este, and Vire are already there in Valinor when the other Valar are li- arrive. Um, that's a really interesting idea to have them not even, have them not there in Almarin at all. I don't know. It's interesting. I, I, you know, the idea almost that like this has already been established, um, as a kind of retreat, right? The, the the place of Valinor has been established by by um you know by the Feanturi at all as a, you know sort of a quiet retreat and so that's why sort of Manway goes there right you know they're going they're going there in retreat to that kind of that kind of seeking that kind of peace that kind of seclusion um uh, but yeah I don't know but at the same time I kind of I don't like the idea of not having them in Almarin at all. Um, maybe they've already established halls there. In addition to having been in, in, in Almarin, they were already over there. You know, because we, we were talking in some of the earlier episodes, like episodes four, five, and six, about like what are the other Valar doing in Almarin, right? What are they up to? And of course, right. they're they're working to help establish. And we've got you know Alde busily building mountain ranges and stuff like that, right? Um, well, there's no reason that Lorien, for instance, couldn't have been building, or, you know, Irmo, that is to say, couldn't have been building his, you know, couldn't have been building Lorien already over in Valinor. Um, so that, 
you know, when this time comes, they already kind of have a place there. Um, but, um, anyhow, um, so I kind of like that. I kind of like that. It's an, it's a very interesting idea. Maybe we could integrate that into the very end of, ep- of the last episode of episode seven. You know, they, they go over to Valinor and find, and find, you know, I would want to say Lorien in particular. That is the, the land of Lorien, uh, you know, Irmo's place, the, the place of, 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 you know, healing and consolation. And that would be, thematically, that would connect really well with their desire to find healing after the, after the destruction of Almerin and the burning of the lamps. Yeah, I like that. Okay, yeah, I like that. If, if we could put that in the end of episode seven, I think that could work really well. But okay, my last comment. The final shot from episode eight, right? Unless we go back to the frame and Estelle and Hope thing. But the final first age shot of episode eight. The trees have grown and have bloomed into light. We see Melkor up on the mountains of the Pelori looking down at the glow of the light above Valmar. And we see the light of the trees reflected in the eyes of Melkor as he looks down. And his looking down upon Valmar and upon the trees, of course, foreshadows his looking down with Ungoliant by his side when he comes for the darkening of Valinor. So we kind of plant the seed for the darkening of Valinor at the end of the episode in which the trees grow. Yeah, Yeah, I like it. Yeah. And, and emphasizing, of course, also his envy and his wrath, right? You know, how he's, you know, he was all like, look at me and my splendid pad here in Atumno and I have everything. And, you know, the, your, your guys' efforts over there is perfectly nice, but obviously I'm better. And then, um, and then have him, but, but then have him, you know, see the, the light of the trees. That's something that he really desires and doesn't want to admit that it's better, but, uh, um, but, uh, but, but anyway, yeah, so I, I, I wanna, I wanna end with that note so that we can emphasize. But again, it's not like him up there with his black hat planning evil, but rather just him with his own internal struggle, you know, his desire for light, which is a good thing, right? The desire for light is, I think, the ultimate core of Melkor's character. Like, that's how Iluvatar created him, with the desire for light. Um, but that's, you know, we see that being warped and twisted. Anyway, that's my last thought. I think that that is a that's I like that a lot. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to finish it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Lydia, I agree. Yeah, the trees are organic, and the tumno could be very artificial in style. Yeah, I agree, and could feel, but in contrast, really sterile. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, yeah. Cool, cool. Um. All right. So questions for next time. My main question kind of comes back to the discussion we were having earlier. Basically, uh, normally I have a series of questions about how do you want to do these? How should we do these particular, handle these particular elements of the next episode? Um, well, my question, we have a question to answer before that, which is, um, what do we do at all in the next episode? I raised the question earlier. Sauron, Ase, Aule. How do we do it? Um, do we want to do Aule first? Um, and ha- so should we do Aule and the dwarves next time? Um, or should we do the... I-, I love the idea of doing Ase and Sauron in parallel and stretching that out over two episodes instead of just doing it in one. Um, do we do that sequence? 
I mean, so is that what we do next? Like the fall of Asse and Sauron? Or do we do, um, uh, or is, or, or do we do, uh, um, Aule first, or do we integrate all three of them? You know, have all three of them done in parallel? What do we think about that? I mean, the other subplot that I was talking about was Yavanna and the Ents, but that one clearly has to come after Aule and the Dwarves, so I'm kind of think we do the three, you know, the three bad boy episodes, right? Or, you know, the three bad boy subplots. We handle all three of them first. Um, and then we can do Yavanna. So then we have basically Yavanna and the Ents, and, uh, and Varda and the constellations can be happening afterwards. So we'll have the the three bad boys and then the two good girls and then we and then we do uh, <laughs> the war. Um, so, well, I, I just I, this is way ahead, but it, the war episode is that going to be the final episode of the season? So the yep. very end is when the yep. elves wake up. Okay. Yeah, episode th- episode thirteen. Yeah, yeah, the, episode thirteen. The war to begin all wars. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I can, let's see, several people have already voiced very strong contrary opinions about which should come first, Aule or Ase and Sauron. Um, that's exactly what I want you guys to be thinking about and developing. Um, start arguing about that, uh, on the discussion forums, please, and we'll think about that and, you know, we'll certainly address that first and then, um, you know, whatever we decide on for next time, we'll, we'll go ahead and do that. But that's that's where I really want the folks to be. So which one next and why? Uh, because, of course, in thinking about that, we'll be thinking about sort of the, the logical thematic progression of those uh, subplots. And hopefully that will also help us to think because, of course, we're also needing to think about where's Melkor and what is Melkor's relationship with the other Valar like? Um during this, you know, how do we get the progression in Melkor's character and the and the progression, you know, towards conflict ultimately uh, between Melkor and the rest of the Valar? So, um, all right, off you go. That'll be. I I I I look forward to hearing what you guys have to say. And I haven't really made up my mind at all yet. So I'm 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 kind of waiting to hear what you guys have to say, and then we'll hash this out next time. Don't forget, next time is not two weeks from today. Two weeks from today is New Year's Day. Um, uh, so we're going to meet the week after that on the eighth, and then we'll meet again on the fifteenth. Um, and so then we'll be back on our regular schedule. A nice long holiday break over which to to go on the forum and fill it with uh, arguments and uh, debates. <laughs> That's right. Got plenty of time to argue about what subplot to do next. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, we've been talking. By the way, we mentioned a while back the desire to um, and to and to reread the same section of the Silmarillion. Really exactly. Movie. Yes. Yes. Yeah. In case you haven't done it, yeah. you should read chapter one of the Quintessilian. <laughs> you have no excuse not to know this chapter backwards <laughs> and forwards by now. Um, but um, uh, anyway, uh, the um, I, I, the last thing I, I just wanted to mention at the end, you know, we had talked before about the desire to have the uh, to to actually make outlines, you know, to write not necessarily full scripts, but to do a kind of scene by scene outline of these episodes based on the ideas that we've been putting forward. Of course, we're not, you know, obviously we're not writing scripts or anything. The main thing, you know, our main job in these podcast in these podcast sessions is to talk about the ideas and the themes and sort of what we'd like to see going on. But that's not the same as really mapping out, you know, 
scene by scene exactly how this is going to go and how we'd actually handle these things. Um, I would love to see that kind of thing, uh, uh, that kind of thing created. Um, I think that would be, that would be really fun. Um, so, um, and I, I think we might, uh, we might get some of that, uh, we might get some of that going soon. So stay tuned for, uh, you know, if you want to join in that, that effort, uh, there should be, uh, um, there should it's be, very exciting. yeah, some 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 that. movement in that direction. I hope so. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, I hope you enjoy your holiday break and have lots of fun and constructive uh, debates about uh, where we go next from here. And I will say thanks for listening and Godspeed. <laughs>